Good morning. Uh, my name's Tony. I'm going to be reading the passage of scripture that my brother Ben's going to preach this morning. Uh, it's John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, and it's on page 835 in the Bibles in the pew there. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Well, at this time, kids ages four through kindergarten can be dismissed to Children's Church, and they'll come back to us at the end of the service. And uh, I don't see a ton of kids in the service, but for kids and adults alike, uh, we have been, throughout the course of the summer, uh, asking uh, kids to draw pictures as we've been preaching as a way to help them stay engaged with what we're doing. And since this is the last Sunday, the kids will be in the service here before we go back to that, uh, we have one more picture for you to draw. So I want you to draw a picture of something you know that you're not. So for instance, you know that you're not a dog. So you can draw a picture of yourself as a dog. Or you know that you may not have a full head of hair. And so draw yourself with a full head of hair. Or you might know you're not a professional athlete. Draw yourself as a professional athlete. And then at the top of the picture, write, I'm not the Christ. Okay? So something you know you're not, and then write, I'm not the Christ. Well, on November 25th, 1976, the classic rock and roll band, aptly named The Band, played their final rock and roll show, at least for a time. And this was not just any old rock and roll show. In honor of it being their final concert, they pulled out all the stops 
they, they held the concert on Thanksgiving Day in a massive ballroom with drinks and dancing. They invited some little-known artists such as Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and Neil Diamond to come perform with them. The band went out in a blaze of rock and roll glory, uh, only to do what most bands of that era did and reconvene 20 years later and play a bunch of reunion tours. But this morning, we come to the final account in John the Apostle's Gospel about John the Baptizer. But as we see this morning, as John the Baptizer passes the baton to Jesus, as it were, we don't get something like the band's final concert. There's no transition of power ceremony. There's no blaze of glory. Instead, we hear John utter these words in verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus himself says, there's never been a man greater than John the Baptist to walk this earth, Matthew chapter 11. And yet John says, I have to fade into the background. How can he say something like that? And why does he say something like that? And and more importantly, how can you and I say something like that? And why would we ever want to? And so this morning, let's look into God's word, and I pray that as we do, that he'll show you not only how you can say the words, he must increase and I must decrease, but also how those words can bring life to you. So if you would, pray with me, and then we'll study God's word together. Father, we hear the psalmist say, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And that's what we ask this morning. We pray that through the study of your word that you would show us the ways in which you want us to take our eyes off of ourselves and turn them to you, so that in each of our lives you may increase and we may decrease. And I pray the same for the preaching of the word now, Lord. May I decrease and may you shine brightly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we study this passage this morning, uh, the outline is going to go something like this. So the first point in verses 22 through 30, we're going to see that Jesus must increase. And then point number two, why Jesus must increase. And point three, what happens when he does increase. So he must increase, why he must increase, and what happens when he does increase. Well, to set the scene for our passage, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for the Passover. So in chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he cleanses the temple, and then he has this long dialogue with Nicodemus, the Jewish leader who comes to him at night. But then in verse 22, Jesus leaves the urban area of Jerusalem and heads out into the countryside of Judea around the city where people start coming to him to be baptized. And then we read in verse 33 or 23 at the same time, John the baptizer is in a region close by baptizing as well. And when John's followers hear that Jesus is baptizing nearby, they immediately come to tell John what's happening. So look with me at verse 36, or 26. 
uh, where we see that. It says, and they, John's followers, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, how do you think John's followers said that to John? Do you think they were intending to simply inform him? Like, hello, wise teacher John, here's your daily briefing for the day. On the first item of business, we have Jesus, who is baptizing real close to here, and all the people are going to him. I don't think it was that matter of fact that they said these things. They seem animated, right? It seems almost like they're tattling on Jesus to John. They say, look, which is the same word that's translated other places in the Bible as behold. There's, there's an amazement there. There's some shock. They say all the people are going to, ba- going to be baptized by him. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole on their part. They're saying to John, can't you see This guy's stealing your thunder. Baptizing is your thing. Jesus has taken your glory. What are you going to do about it, John? And John responds in a way that is so foreign to us. He is not threatened, but he replies like this in verses 27 and 28. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, this is not how most of us would respond if a fellow salesman were hired at the same level in the company and immediately began siphoning off some of our clients and outselling us. But John sees Jesus not through the framework of competition. John knows the unique position that God gave to him from heaven. John knows that he was the appointed special herald and forerunner to the Messiah. His job was to get the people ready for the Messiah to come. But he even says to his followers, you guys heard me and you can repeat it back to me what I said to you, that I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. You see, John knows who he is, and he also knows who he is not. And then John continues to describe his position in relation to, in relation to Jesus by way of this metaphor of a wedding. So look at verses 29 and 30. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him Rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in this metaphor, John is describing himself as the ancient equivalent of the best man in our modern day weddings, or maid or matron of honor, if you like. But in ancient times, the best man had even more responsibility than he does today. He was responsible to make sure that the day went off without a hitch. He planned the wedding, he ensured that the bride and groom got there, and that they were married, and he actually ensured that the marriage was consummated in some weird ancient custom sort of way. He had a huge role and responsibility. 
But once the bride and groom came together, the best man's joy was complete. His job was finished. He did what he was supposed to do, and now he faded into the background of the party. Much like in our own weddings, after the best man and and maid of honor give their toasts, they party like the rest of everybody. They're the chief rejoicers, and they fade into the background. For John, his ministry was to prepare the bride, God's people, for the arrival of their groom that was promised way back in Isaiah 62. And now that John, now that, now that the Messiah has arrived, John rejoices in this, and his ministry fades out. Now, if you've ever watched the TV show The Office before, then you'll know that some of Michael Scott's cringiest moments happen at weddings. So for those of you who aren't office uh, people or haven't seen it, Michael is the, the insecure but incredibly self-important boss in the office who will stop at no lengths to gain approval from others and make himself look good. And his actions are so cringeworthy at weddings especially because he doesn't understand at all the dynamic that John is talking about here. So for those of you who haven't seen The Office, there's one instance where one of Michael's employees, Phyllis, is getting married. And Michael is tasked with the job of pushing Phyllis's father down the aisle. He's disabled and he's in a wheelchair. And he walks Phyllis down the aisle and Michael is supposed to push Phyllis's father behind. And halfway down the aisle, Phyllis's father stands up from his wheelchair. The, the people start clapping and somebody even says, it's a miracle. And he stands up from his chair and walks Phyllis the rest of the way down the aisle. Now, if Michael thought more like John the Baptist, Michael would take the wheelchair, quietly wheel it behind him, put it on the front row, and then go sit down. But for those of you who have seen the episode, what does Michael do? Michael takes the empty wheelchair and drags it like this across down the aisle and smacks every single pew on his way down, making a huge commotion. He then slams it down on the front row, and he very slowly walks like this, up to take a spot with the groomsmen. He weasels his way in between two of them. And then they cut to a monologue of Michael saying this. Me wheeling him down the aisle was supposed to be the highlight of this wedding. I can't believe I wheeled that guy's lazy butt around all day. He stole the show, but I got news for you, pal. The show's not over. (laughs) I mean, come on. Now, that makes us cringe even hearing it, and it's worse or funnier if you watch it. It's ridiculous, but it makes us cringe or, or laugh in relief because we are all Michael Scott, right? Deep down, rather than being the best man, we want to be the center of attention, Ever since Adam and Eve took the fruit in the Garden of Eden, we have wanted to usurp God's authority and live life in the spotlight. And like Michael Scott and like John's followers, we believe that we should increase. No one had better steal our thunder, not even Jesus himself. And in fact, when Jesus approaches us with this demand that he must increase and we must decrease, we often react like Michael Scott. We, we flail around like a child cry, trying to keep the attention and the approval 
on us. And what John depicts in verse 29 with this image of a wedding and what he describes in verse 30 is biblical humility. So so we all naturally live our lives as if our positions and gifts and talents are something that we've attained. We all live as if we are the Christ. We live with the spirit of pride, which is this endless and joyless need to increase. But instead, John calls us to the path of humility. He calls us to the lifestyle of a best man or a maid of honor. Best men recognize their position, gifts, and talents are God-given and that they're not the Savior. Best men take their greatest joy in the exaltation of the groom. Best men, like John, know who they are and they know who they are not. That's what biblical humility looks like. And humility like this is the antidote to so many things in our lives. It's the antidote to envy. That's what we see in John's followers here. They were envious of the attention that Jesus and his followers were getting from people. And envy elevates our self in pride and says, I deserve what that person has. Humility is the antidote to that. Humility is the antidote to tribalism, which John's followers were also guilty of. They, they looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus is doing the thing that our guy does. Our guy is supposed to be baptizing. That's for our tribe and our people, and he's doing that. It's this elevated sense of self and the people we put around ourselves to make ourselves feel good and important. Humility is also the antidote to, to self-importance to this endless need that I am the center of everything, maybe even that that I have to be present in a certain situation in order for that thing to go well. It's a deflation to this ever-inflated sense of self that we all have. Humility is the antidote to a lack of joy. Because whenever we act like God and feel like we need to elevate ourselves constantly to the place of God, we can't live up to that. We can't be anything but sorrowful at that and sad deep down because we know we are not God. There's no joy to be found in that. We do these things because we are proud, because we have a false view of who we are. And because of this, we constantly desire to increase. And so just a few questions to to check this in your own heart. Is your life dedicated to shining the spotlight in all things on Jesus? Do you possess a stamina for going unnoticed? Can you handle being overlooked? Do you have a spirituality that equips you to do an unknown thing for God's glory? Can you rejoice in someone else's success for God's glory, even if that person isn't in the same theological tribe as you, or if you have a little petty beef with that person? Can you rejoice in their success? And I'll confess at this point, as pastors, we are often the worst best men. I often don't say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.18 that wherever Christ is preached, I rejoice. 
As one pastor I heard this week say, pastors and longtime Christians often say this. They easily lapse into this mindset. He must increase, so I must increase. But that is nothing more than over-spiritualized, baptized pride. And as we approach a church plant, as we as a church come up on doing this sort of work, a question that I received from another pastor has been lodged into my mind. He said, if God did this work that you see as necessary in this same city through another person and another church, would you still rejoice? That gets at it. But if I view my life through the humility of a best man, then I will rejoice because that would result in the glory of King Jesus and my joy would be complete. We must decrease, he must increase. But the question remains, I think, why? So it might seem wrong to ask in church, but why put aside my own desires and seeking my own glory for Jesus's? Why must he increase? Well, simply put, he must increase because he comes from God with the words and authority of God. He must increase because although we are not the Christ, he is the Christ. Look with me at verses 31 to 34 here. We're going to read uh, halfway through verse 34. So starting in verse 31, it says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Now you can tell where a person comes from by how they talk and what they talk about. So for instance, those of you who were born and raised in PA know that you can tell whether somebody's from Eastern PA or Western PA based on a number of different things, but one of them being what you call two thin slices of cake with cream in the middle. Right? Is it a gob or is it a whoopie pie? I would argue it's a gob, but my family's from near Johnstown, so that's how that works. But my sister and I both married people from Georgia, and we will often talk about sometimes, it seems like our spouses are from another planet. So, so my wife, Whitley, and my sister's husband, Chase, when they go to the grocery store and they grab that thing that we push around to put groceries in, they call it a buggy. I'm like... It's not pulled by a horse and doesn't ride on the road. That's not a buggy. But you can tell they're from the south, by the way, they talk. And similarly, John claims here that you can tell that Jesus doesn't come from the earth, from our domain, because of the way that he speaks. Because he speaks the things of God. Another way to say this is Jesus is a cultural insider of heaven. And so John the baptizer, the greatest among men, and all of us like him, are merely created beings. We're from the earth, and we talk like it. And nothing is new under the sun when it comes to human words. But when words from God break in, 
When one from heaven breaks in, we can't avoid it. Jesus speaks the words of God as one who has been with God from eternity past with a stamp of divine approval from the Father by the Spirit. That's what it says if you read on into 34 and 35. And praise the Lord that Jesus has done this because if he hasn't spoken from heaven into our earthly earthly existence, then we remain in the echo chamber of human existence. Jesus must increase because he came from God to speak the words of God with the authority of God. And let me stop here and make this point briefly. In a day and age that loudly encourages us to trust our own voice more than any other, we desperately need a God who speaks. We desperately need the Bible. Jesus still speaks the words of God to us today by the power of his spirit in the scriptures. You see, when you open up your Bible, you're not just doing a religious exercise. You are opening yourself up to the words of God in Christ. You are communing with the living Jesus. God himself speaks personally through his word into your own personal existence. You're not left to yourself. It was amazing. I saw this yesterday. A few of you were were there. We had an outreach team retreat yesterday here in the cafe at church. And we started the meeting by everybody going around and saying a scripture passage that's been particularly meaningful to them. And I was overwhelmed as I heard 12 people speak of the way that God immediately spoke to them by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures and was radically transforming their life because of it. It's amazing. We, we take this thing for granted so oftentimes, but when we open up the scriptures, a voice from outside of ourself is speaking into our existence. It's a miracle, and we need to act like it. We need to treasure it for what it is. It's the words of Christ speaking to us still. Well, John Calvin, uh, the great theologian of the 16th century, he began his entire theology with the idea that knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourself are intimately intertwined and interrelated with each other. So in other words, The foundation of everything we know about God begins with the reality that we can't know God unless we know ourself, and we can't know ourself unless we know God. So it seems a little bit abstract. Why must Jesus increase, and why must we decrease? Because Jesus is the one not from earth, who has broken into earth from heaven with words of life and salvation with the very authority of God himself. We must decrease and he must increase because between the dividing line of God and all the rest, between creator and creature, Jesus is on the creator side and all the rest of us are on the creature side. You see, The definition of humility that I gave earlier is is not fully complete yet. Biblical humility does consist in knowing who we are and who we are not. 
but it also consists in knowing who God is. And we can't know who God is without knowing Jesus Christ, who comes from God to speak the words of God into our existence. The the Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer profoundly puts it like this. He says, we have to be creatures because that is what we are, creatures. So, So by nature, you and I are created by God. We can't change that. That's who we are. But listen to what he says. He says, but in Christ, we are presented with an opportunity, a calling to be a creature by choice. That's what humility looks like. You have the choice. When presented with Jesus' identity as the Savior from God who speaks the words of God, to be a creature by choice, by humbling yourself to him. When you see Jesus and yourself, the question is, will you respond with a life of worship that says, he must increase and I must decrease? So that's why he must increase. And lastly, let's look at what happens. What happens when Jesus begins to increase in our lives? And in order to see that, let's read the final verse of this chapter, verse 36. And this verse functions as kind of a summary of all of John chapter 3, of all that we've talked about the last three weeks. And so listen for the themes that have come up as we've talked about these passages the last three weeks. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that should sound really familiar to us, right? He's he's picking up some of those themes, especially verses 14 to 21 that we've seen. But I think hearing these themes after we hear he must increase and I must decrease, it gives them a unique emphasis. It gives what John says in verse 36 a unique flavor. And that is this, that belief in the Son, faith in Jesus, lived out in life, looks exactly like he must increase and I must decrease. So trust in Jesus Christ lived out into our lives looks like he must decrease, or he must increase. I knew I was going to do that at some point in the sermon. He must increase and I must decrease. But on the contrary, unbelief or disobedience to Jesus looks exactly like I must increase and he must decrease. Okay, so if you're with me on that, look at the glorious truth that verse 36 presents to us then. That all who place their trust in Jesus, all who decrease so that he might increase in their lives, will be exalted to eternal life. And the flip side, those who increase, who don't believe in the Son, but live their lives for their own glory, will be brought low under the wrath of God. So what happens when we increase so... Ah, when we decrease so that he might increase. He exalts us. What happens when we give up our glory so that Jesus might receive it? In that very act, we are being glorified. 
What happens when we give up earthly pleasures for the sake of Jesus' fame? Our joy is made complete. You see, and we know this to be true because this is precisely what happened to Jesus. You see, in a paradoxical way, Jesus is the best, best man that ever lived. Because Jesus, as a perfect man, humbled himself under the mighty hand of his Father. Jesus decreased and became a servant. Jesus never said, he must increase and I must decrease. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did pray, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Jesus decreased to the point of death on the cross for the sins of the world. And as he decreased into the grave, what happened? What happened when he made himself low for the sake of his Father's glory? Well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 tell us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And by faith in Jesus, by believing in him, you are united to his eternal life and you can know that when you decrease, when you seek the low place for his glory, in those very moments, you are being exalted to eternal life. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to and exalts the humble, those who decrease so that he might increase. Now, we've made a big deal in this sermon about John's words in verse 30. But did you know, most Bible commentators believe that in the text, John the baptizer's words actually stop with verse 30, and John the gospel writer's words begin in verse 31. That's why if you pay attention to your text, you'll see the quotation marks stop after verse 30 in your Bibles. Now, minute textual details are a weird thing to bring up in a conclusion to a sermon. So what's the point of that? It means that the words, he must increase and I must decrease, are the last words on John's lips in this gospel. That after this moment, John literally does fade out in the story. The stage goes to black and he's off. And Jesus is now front and center for the rest of the gospel. It's the very last thing we hear him say. And so the question for us, is will your life, will your story, like John's gospel, do the same thing? Will it feature Christ as prominent? Will you fade out and let the light of Jesus shine through you? Jesus promises us that if we humble ourselves before him, if we decrease so that he might increase, that we will not stay low, but that we will reach heights of glory we couldn't even imagine. And so the question for us, the choice before us this morning in this text is, 
will he increase and will we be exalted to eternal life with him? Or will we increase and one day be brought low under the wrath of God? I pray that as we're faced with that choice, that we would, like John, be a best man whose joy is made complete in the glory of the groom, Jesus Christ, and that our lives would burn out for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we love the spotlight in ways that make us uncomfortable to verbalize or think about for too long. We love to be the center of attention. We love to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, as your word says. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear view of who you are and of who we are so that we might humble ourselves and live lives of worship, lives that say you must increase and we must decrease and give us the strength by your spirit to live this way day after day after day. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.